Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Uh, we are beginning the book of Leviticus together this morning, the book of Vayikra. Many commentators do not begin Vayikra at Vayikra at like as a as a new book. They actually many commentators attach it to the end of Pikude, which was the ending parsha of Exodus. So that 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 this verse of the begins our Torah portion is directly linked to the end of Pikude. So we'll we'll look at that and see uh, if we concur with that. Um, is the division into books uh, did someone just decide that one day where books start? Or uh, generally they are uh, like Leviticus is understood to be a different author or a different school of authorship and a different agenda than other books. Remember Deuteronomy is late and uh, Genesis, Exodus, you know, that material gets gets formulated into those uh, two books. And Leviticus is something entirely different, written by the priestly source only, right? So P has his, or her, well, his, <laughs> P has their hand in uh, both J and E, taking those early sources of J and E, the Yahwist and the Elohist. P redacts a lot of J and E and adds all the genealogies. Right, because that's P's interest. And so P plays with J and E and is in there in Genesis and Exodus. It is only P who's involved in Leviticus. That's the priestly writings. Correct. So that this is this is the manual for the priests. Or some people want to say this is the manual that holds the priests accountable for doing their job, but it's written for the people. So that the people can hold the priests accountable. You can decide if that argument has weight for you priests, or not. Priests wrote it. You think they wrote it which, which, for their benefit. So it was written by the priests for the people. You wouldn't think it would go that way. In the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, uh, out of which this religion emerges, the biblical cult emerges, only the priests knew the rituals. Only the priests knew what happened in the sacred precinct. And a regular Canaanite would bring their offering. The priest would take it from there and that's it. You know, the person might have been handed back meat, sacrificial meat to eat, you know, in order to share in that. I don't, I don't know. I don't know enough about pagan uh, Canaanite practices to know. I really should. Um, someday. It's another part of a PhD, but not now. Um, Tell us when you'll teach that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because I, th- I think it's fascinating to, to see where did Israelite cult differ from and how did it differ from the, the, uh, the religion out of which it emerged, which was Canaanite paganism. I'm very curious about those early beginnings of the, the Israelite cult. But what we know is that the, the, the animal would have been taken by the priests and that's it. That's all the, the person bringing the, you know, the worshiper, that's all they would have experienced. This is the first time that the 
things that happened behind the veil was understood by the people. So that's the only reason, uh, Reuben, that this might have been written for the people, not because the priests wanted it, but because that was the new arrangement, right? That the people said, "Mm mm-mm, not anymore, right? Our relationship to the divine is that you work on our behalf and we are and you shall teach these words to your children and they shall like we're, we're supposed to know what goes on we are commanded to know we are commanded to learn and teach it to our children and talk about it all the time and so it might have been the people's pressure to say we want to see those books we, we want to know exactly because we've been told we are in direct relationship with God. We are in the covenantal relationship. God is, you now work for us and take on the risk of protecting the sancta on our behalf. And so we, we, we want to know exactly what's going on. Um, we, we don't know which, which way that went, but we do know that presumably every Israelite had access to now exactly what was supposed to happen in the Mishkan, which later, we don't know if the Mishkan existed for real or not, but we do know that this happened in the temple, or we suspect a lot of it happened in the temple, right? Um, We don't know about all of the sacrifices. Are they exactly like we have it here in Leviticus? Some people have suggested if you followed the laws of Leviticus and sacrificed the way Leviticus says you're supposed to sacrifice, they would have wiped out their livestock like it just it just if you take people and you take livestock and you take how long it takes to grow a cow and feed a cow right or a bull or whatever if if you really factor that in and the cost of that and then look at Leviticus and what it tells you you have to bring like all that that, that it would not have added up there's just it's just un, completely unrealistic so some people say this never happened even in the temple that it was kind of a vision of what should be but but never was it was not practical and so it wasn't the actual um, practice, but many of these things we know from other sources would have would have been, uh, in fact, part of the ritual, like lighting the menorah, like the incense, like right. Those there are elements that we believe were actually part of the temple. We know from other sources, anyway, um, were part of the temple ritual. All right. The practices that we see here are not specific to ancient Israel, so that's. Sometimes we get all hung up on, well, how come, blah, blah, right? Because that's the way it was in the ancient Near East. This is what you did. It was understood. There was sacrifice. Sacrifice atoned. There was a lot of concern with purity and impurity, which we're going to talk about at another time because we're not at that yet. Um, but sacrifice was the way that you initiated contact with the deity, and you hoped that the deity accepted your gift, and then you got what you wanted from the deity. That's the way it worked in the ancient world, right? Um, even into Christianity, right? Sacrifice is still a very important part of Christianity. So we tend to think of sacrifice as like, like it's gone. It's not true. It's, it's still a part of some people's understanding of a right relationship with the divine requires sacrifice. Yeah. Hmm? Even left. I think they're left now. So, uh, but sacrifice meant sacrifice. It did not mean giving something up. Sacrifice meant the death of an innocent. That's the whole premise of Christianity, that Jesus sacrificed his life. And he had to be innocent. Yes. The victim, for sacrifice to be effective, must be innocent. 
Otherwise, it's too close to, well, if you're, if you're not a nice person, then we just kill you because you're a criminal. The, the victim has to be innocent in order for it to take my place, right, and take what I deserve. So that's the way it's always worked in the sacrificial system. The sacrifice must be innocent. It, and taken to its extreme, even think about all those times that um, young women were chained, you know, to a rock, you know, because somebody's going to war and they want to propitiate the gods, right? It had to be an innocent victim. And victim, by the way, victim comes from sacrifice. That word always meant the sacrifice. So is that like when they say Jesus died, say he died for our sins, so he was pure, and then... So that he was innocent. He was innocent. And because they couldn't have uh, had someone who had committed a sin, right? Presumably, if the victim has to be innocent, you want the most innocent possible. So, yes, he was seen as without sin. And then he got rewarded by being reborn. Um, well, the, it, it differs as to what happened was he reborn did he ever die did he ascend did he i mean right so wrong book <laughs> wrong book innocence <laughs> original sin is a different book but I want to, but I want to go back to victim, right? That that word enters our language from this. And what I'm trying to say is, it was that universal. There there wasn't a word victim that meant you got robbed. Victim always meant the offering, the live offering that was killed as part of the sacrifice. Okay, so it was that common. We only have that word because of. It was everywhere, this practice, right? All, all over this part of the world and in other parts of the world as well. But, but in this part of the world, it was absolutely normative, okay? Right. Because it was understood that, that there has to be some mechanism whereby atonement is affected. And part of that involved the blood, the life force of the animal that is a cleansing agent, those can't be separated. The sacrifice can't be separated from the fact that blood is involved, right? Because we're going to see a lot of stuff that happens with blood. They are, they are related. The life force of the animal, life, 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 intense life. Blood is life intensified a million times, right? Um, and sin is understood to be that which is related in some way, or impurity for sure, somehow related to death, right? Or I think it's Rabbi Iris Stone who talks about death in life, Moments or actions of death in life. Um, that, that that deafness contaminates life. So only a major, major, major life force can clean it. Okay? So that is the blood of the victim. Almost all primitive art has red as its main color. Be, right, because we're, vi- we're very right. attached to, we get it. Right? We really get it. You see red on the pavement, and it's like, like we, we get it. Like we have a visceral responds to that. And so that is very powerful in the ancient world. And in some ways we've really lost our, I think about like how much blood I see on TV just as a matter of fact, right? Just in any show you watch anymore, you can't watch any show without watching somebody get their like 
head splattered. Like, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, Antiques Roadshow. Antiques, you could, <laughs> yes, thank you for the correction. You, you could watch Antiques Roadshow and not have to worry about this, but then you'd have to worry about putting out your own eye with a chopstick just to keep yourself entertained. So, the, the power, the power that this ritual set of rituals has like we we've become so distant from it because we just don't confront it anymore we don't confront blood anymore we don't confront death this way anymore the drama of it is gone um, I'm going to read you something um, later we're going to get back to that idea later um, I'll read you something from Maurice Harris's book Leviticus you have no idea <laughs> um, so it's great. It's really, it's really great. Well, I mean, for those of us who love digging into the meaning of Leviticus, it's great. Not everybody would find it, you know, compelling. Leviticus, you have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. No. Is the blood restriction with kosher related in any way with this? Yes. Absolutely. So you, because we get the prohibition against eating the blood. Right, you can kill an animal, and there's lots of reasons that that you can offer one as a sacrifice. You may not eat its life force. The life force was only for cleansing the space, right? The communal space, the temple. Uh, if we're imagining the Mishkan, then the Mishkan and the entire camp, so that God's presence could dwell in the holy of holies. That's the purpose. It is communal, right? I bring my sacrifice not for me. This is really important to remember. I don't bring it for me. If I'm bringing a sin offering, it's not so that I get forgiven. I bring a sin offering because I have contaminated the communal space. Only I bringing my offering can cleanse the space of my sin. And if my sin is there and then ickiness is collecting, right? then God's presence tries but cannot dwell among us so it's not about I bring a sacrifice so I get forgiven and now me and God are groovy that's part of it it's there but that's not the point the point is it's communal so you can't take you can't kill an animal and then drink its life force so that you get more life so that you get more powerful so that you get more vigorous so that you get younger you know like whatever it is people you know think of all the stories we've heard you know and and still it happens right that people eat parts of animals and and and, you know ingest things so that they're they're going to take on that power from the animal we are not allowed to do that that was one of the accusations during pilgrims that Jews sacrificed children and drank their blood right so because because that's in every culture Drinking blood or or eating tiger's testicles will make you more virile as a man. Like we we forever human beings have thought if you eat this part of the animal, it will imbue you with a quality associated with that part of the animal. The life force. Just imagine. I don't know what it means, but imagine why you might drink the life force of an animal, right? I mean, I'm filling in the blanks about being more vigorous or being more youthful or being more, you know, but. But you can imagine what people might have thought about taking in that life force. So Torah says, absolutely not. You cannot do that. So that is what, so it says you cannot eat the blood. And so that part of kashrut has continued, you know, to, to be binding as far as halachic Jews are concerned. That is still binding. And so that is why the meat is soaked and salted um, to remove all the blood. Okay. I've heard that uh, Leviticus traditionally is the first book of Torah taught to children. 
Because it's, it's the most it straight. It's not the easiest. <laughs> it's the most straightforward. There, there's there's less until you get to Hasidism, mm-hmm. right? And the altars on the heart and the you know sacrifices your you know thoughts. You know until you get there, it's pretty straightforward, right? That what happens and what they're supposed to do and the the sequence. You light the menorah. You light it in the morning. You light it at night. You you bring a sin offering for this and it's a bull and it's not a ram and it's a, you know so. It, it just kind of it, it, it's less remes and sewed, you know, less stuff underneath. So they kind of start there. I have a quick question. One day when I was baking at Kevin Hall with a bunch of women from Chabad, so when I put the eggs in, I put it in the bowl, but they would crack each egg separately in case there was blood in it. Right. Yeah. And only if there was no blood, then they could mm-hmm. use Correct. it. Correct. So, so I didn't ask. I'm not sure that's it though. I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's. You can't eat blood. I think it's something about the egg might have been fertilized. That that you. There's a different. Then it's trafe. Okay. Okay. Then it's then then it's more chicken than egg. I think that's it. I'm not sure. Don't quote me. Don't quote me. But I think that's what it, it's. It. it, it, it um, it changes the status of the egg yeah. in such a way that the laws of kashrut become different. I can't forget. I can't remember if it becomes treif altogether, like it's immediately treif, okay. or if it's subject to different laws of kashrut and you can't put it in a challah then because you can't. Okay. okay. All right. All right. So let's go to Vayikra. One, one. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying... Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, When any of you presents an offering of cattle to the Lord, he shall choose his offering from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall make his offering a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting for acceptance in his behalf before the Lord. He shall lay his hand upon the head of the burnt offering that it may be acceptable in his behalf in expiation for him. The bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer the blood, dashing the blood against all sides of the altar, which is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The burnt offering shall be flayed and cut up into sections. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and lay out wood upon the fire, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall lay out the sections with the head and the suet on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. Its entrails and legs shall be washed with water, and the priest shall turn the whole into smoke on the altar as a burnt offering, a gift of pleasing odor to the Lord. Go on. If his offering for a burnt offering is from the flock of sheep or of goats, he shall make his offering of a male without blemish. It shall be slaughtered before the Lord on the north side of the altar, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall dash its blood against all sides of the altar. When it has been cut up into sections, the priest shall lay them out, with the head and the suet on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. The entrails and the legs shall be washed with water. The priest shall offer up and turn the whole into smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a gift of pleasing odor to the Lord. Keep going. (laughs) If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, he shall choose his offering from uh, turtle doves or pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar, pinch off its head, and turn it into smoke on the altar, and its blood shall be drained out against the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it into into the place of the ashes at the east side of the altar. 
the priest shall tear it open by its wings without serving it and turn severing it, it. Severing it, excuse me. And without severing it and turn it into smoke upon the altar, on the altar, upon the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a gift of pleasing odor to the Lord. Right, the reason I didn't interrupt is because you get the sense that this is a, a pattern. You get that this is a manual. You get that this is the technical way all this is to be done. And we all kind of go, ew, but... Who ate turkey at Thanksgiving? Mm-hmm. Somebody had to cut, chop off the head of that turkey and pluck its feathers and pull out its inner, right? So we go, ew, and yet we go to In-N-Out Burger, right, and don't think a lot about this. So it's fine that we go, ooh, I get it. It's visceral. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to make us shiver. It's supposed to turn our stomach a little. They understood that. They understood that killing an animal, taking a life, and watching it be, you know, taken apart was supposed to be powerful and impactful. It was not supposed to be casual. We are the ones with a very casual relationship to death of animals. So I will, and I am a, I am a carnivore big time. So I am not someone who is apologizing in any way for the fact that we eat it. Some people like don't for that reason, right? I do. All I'm saying is um, that they understood both the cost. It was a hugely expensive thing, eating meat. They raised it. They fed it, right? They had to move to let those animals graze. Their whole lives were around raising. These are semi-nomadic pastoralists originally. Here they're probably city dwellers. But they originally were semi-nomadic pastoralists. Their whole culture was about taking care of these animals. Where you picked up and moved was where the animals could eat and got water, they understood the cost that went into raising one of these things. And so for them, the cost was huge to sacrifice. Um, and, and they ate this. Some of it they didn't. Some of it they did. If we think about what goes to waste now, right, of, of an animal that's killed, it's, right, it's quite something. Why did they burn the entrails and the legs? Why the legs? I'm not sure about why the legs, actually. I, I don't know if there was something that might have been done with legs, right, that that it needed to be clear that the Israelites weren't going to do. Um, but my commentary uh, only gives me on entrails, right? And we, remember why why entrails? Why do we burn all the entrails? Because superstitious people would leave them. Okay, so they're not superstitious. They are religious. Religious people would have used them for divination. Right? So um, they would read the liver or the kidney or the entrails. You know, you would you would cut open an animal, you'd look at their innards, and that was a form of divination. So to be clear that ancient Israel was not to engage in that was to make sure they got put on the altar and turned into smoke. So that it was also clear that the priests were not using them in any way to do that, they are instructed to burn it on the altar. Because this, maybe, we don't even know, this would be all that the people had. These words. Why, why do I say that? Why do I say this is all they had? If we're talking about checks and balances, this is all they had. What do I mean by that? The Constitution. Yes. But why is this all they had? Didn't they have other ways to know what was going on? Or... Um, to, to know what was supposed to be going on orally, the people didn't see the sacrifices. 
No, we forget that. No one saw this. This happened in the temple precincts where people were not allowed. Certainly women were not allowed anywhere near any of this business. But males who were not priests were not part of this. So you had to have, like, so the instruction is, and the instruction that gets talked about and talked about and talked about and repeated and repeated and taught and taught, you should teach it, is so that the entrails are to be burned on the altar and turned into smoke. Meaning, your priests are not back there looking into entrails to, you know, predict your future. And don't go to them and say, if I sneak you, a, you know, a, an extra gold coin, can you let me know what the, what the kidney said? Right, you know, because they are commanded to turn it into smoke on the altar. So if they tell you, "Well, I took a peek at the," then they've they've broken the law. Right. Right. So it's a way. This is what I mean about holding the priests accountable. Is there couldn't be a secret system of, okay, what did my calf entrails really say? I I know we're not supposed to do that anymore, (laughs) but I know you saw them, right? But it's they got turned into smoke on the altar. I can't, you know. Anyway, two things. There are many children still in the area where I grew up who are part of 4-H. And they raise the animals to sell for slaughter. They're very attached to them. They raise them from babies. They feed them. They groom them. And then they take them to the auction to be sold for slaughter. Mm-hmm. That's That really makes you aware of the price of life more than the value of the meat. And and any, any farmer... Of animals gets it. Yeah. So maybe that's why this is but, read to children. And and any farmer's kid, any anybody who grew up on a ranch, yeah. knows this. You know. My job was to take the chicken by the head and sling it to kill, to kill it. Yeah. Right. That's and that's that's that was everybody. That, was. We 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 tend to think about the except like we're going to name the exceptions now, like the, the people who are still close to that. But once upon a time. Anybody who ate chicken for dinner had to kill it. If like any, if you lived on the land and you had and you ate animals, it's because somebody killed it for you. You know, you went and exchanged this for somebody's for half a cow. And I mean, everybody understood that, right? And um, it's we who are naive about this and are somehow protected. But throughout human history, it, people were very close to this. They understood that if you ate meats because you hunted it, you know, you killed it. You know, or so, somehow you you and you had to deal with it. You had to deal with what with what that meant. And right. finally, look at the relationship of women and blood and the prohibitions. So that's different. But it's still the separation of blood from ordinary life. <coughs> We're gonna get there. Okay. Not now. Okay. Um, but it's different. <laughs> it's a, it's a yes. It's dealing with blood and life and whatever. But it's it's a different. Relationship that that's about purity. Right. All right. Um, so so you get this idea that for every for every kind of offering, this is what's going to happen, and its entrails are going to be burned. It's for a pleasing odor to God. Right. That's what God gets from it is the reach nichoach, the smoke, the smell. If you've if you've ever walked by a barbecue and you like meat. Um, there is no, I start salivating like immediately like it's not even a voluntary response I walk by a barbecue and like I start salivating and I notice that I'm like I'm famished like I'm so hungry I'm ravenous right and that's that's a normal response that protein was very rare in the ancient world you didn't eat it very often so that smell was like an incredible de- delicacy right and so that's what God gets 
from this, right? We, we superimpose on God, we project onto God an enjoyment of that smell. And so that's God's part of the offering. That's why the fat is offered to God because that smell is, is so amazing and so pleasing. Reach nichoach, a way pleasing odor, um, is what God takes away from every sacrifice, as well as being together with the Israelites who ate that meal, right? The Israelite ate the sacrifice, uh, and so did the clan, presumably, and so you're sharing a meal with God. That's the point of sacrifice. Two things, to cleanse the communal space with the life force and to eat with God. Every time we see (coughs) an important thing happen, it is celebrated with a meal. Abraham cuts the covenant with God. What happens? God says, "Come and with the you know, and you you eat." Right? We have the Moshe and the seventy elders. What are they called up to do? You witness that God is in relationship with them. We have the theophany, blah blah blah, and then they have a covenantal meal. Right? They, you you sealed important things in the ancient world with food. Still today, we do this. You don't have any important occasion. In your lives, I would bet you that didn't involve a meal where the guests are invited to sit with you and eat and with the celebrant. If it's the bride and groom, if it's the bar mitzvah, you know, if it's, you know, whatever it is, it's the mother who's just given birth, whatever it is, you you sit with the celebrant and you take part in a communal meal. And that kind of, it, it finishes, it seals the the event, the change of status, you know, or whatever it is that's happening, right? After a funeral, the first thing we do is go back and eat with the family. It's a seudat mitzvah. It's a, it's a mitzvah to eat with the family right after that. You accompany them into those first steps of life after they've buried a loved one. And some people feel that kashrut might have been established in part to keep us from eating with people who sure. follow the laws of kosher. Sure, absolutely. So we don't intermarry because we don't socialize. Because socializing and eating together would have formulated very close relationships. Right. That's the point. right? The Israelite is coming to eat with God because that is intimacy. That's an intimacy that we are seeking uh, through sacrifice. I just want to point out that we are given the Olah here, so with that one, it's completely burned up, and we're not... Right, correct, yes. So in the case of the Olah, all of it is burnt. It, it is not Beyond. a part of a meal. So only the Holocaust is offered that way. It is only the Holocaust that is completely burned up. Every other offering is eaten. This image of... God, I guess, being able to smell. What do the rabbis think of that? <laughs> of course, I mean, it's, it's metaphoric. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the God say the rabbis because like, oh, that smells good. Because God forbid we should think <laughs> it's literal, right? Because that would be heresy. Um, but yes, it's certainly remnants, right, from a time when the gods were seen as eating and drinking and otherwise. Who's been in my box? And it says Rabbi Amy's markers. And I had two pristine erasers in there. Okay. A little chat with the religious school. Because see, look at that. Unbelievable. I know, right? All right. So the word. 
<laughs> yeah, there may be blood spilled. Um, that was a joke. That was a joke, and we are laughing at that joke. Korban is the word for sacrifice. Yes? From the Hebrew Shoresh what? Three letters. It's always three letters, usually. Well, it, give me the letters. Kuf, Resh, Vet. All right. And Kuf, Resh, Bet always has to do with what? Closeness? Close. Remember, we're always dealing with the Shoresh. So the Shoresh, Kuf, Resh, Vet is always about close. So now you can come up with a lot of verbs, like, you know, to whatever you want to do with that. But so Korban is a noun coming from the verb, or not the verb, but the state of being close. All right? So do you understand why it's hard to to translate this as sacrifice? Right, so you translate that for me. It's the noun coming from the shoresh meaning close. Translate this for me. Closeness. Closeness. Oh, that's an adjective. Right. It's it's a noun. It's a thing. Yeah. Proximity. Proximity. <laughs> that's proximity tells us about a state yeah. generally, right? It's not. Yes, it, it's itself kind of a noun-ish thing, but it's, proximity is talking about. Like uh, the the noun closing <laughs> closing might be more of a verb. Relative, it is relative. Intimacy better. Um, again, that's a state, right? We're talking about a thing. The real thing, the thing that causes this. Intimacizer. <laughs> right? Like, right? Closinator. No. No. Proximity, no. intimacy, these are like stative. But, but when we talk about the thing that makes that happen, no. the intimacy, the intimacier. <laughs> right? The, Maybe there's no word. The, that's my point. <laughs> That's my point. So when, when you read sacrifice, pff, like pff, that it's not even close to the Hebrew. The Hebrew is th- that which allows me to draw close. To what? To, to the God. That's what's happening right now. I take this that allows me to draw close to God and then follow the procedures. That's what this was called. It's interesting. Sacrifice, I think, comes from sacred, which in Hebrew you might say kadosh, Kadosh. which means separate, Separate. not close. So it's, well, separate meaning set aside for for God and those purposes. So that way it might be closer Closer um, to God. But, But right, like it... It's another way that the Latin doesn't serve us in our... And the only reason I do this to y'all, it's not to frustrate you, I promise. It's that every time you read the word sacrifice in English, I want you to remember this moment of like trying to get at what the Hebrew might actually mean so that you go, oh, right. We read sacrifice, but it's really about how do, 
How do you designate that which helps us draw close to the divine? That's what they're talking about. That's how they understood this, was this word. But the adjective for is unable to speak thing. It's ephemeral. That's, That's why you can't say it. There there is a level, certainly, of ineffability about some of this. There are technical terms that are very concrete, right? That, yes, point to larger ideas. But but the reason y'all can't find a word for this is not because it's ephemeral. It's because it doesn't exist in English. That's my my only point in illustrating this is this is not an ephemeral concept. Yes, it points to an ephemeral concept. But the lamb... Itself, the the sheep, the bird is not ephemeral. It, what's the word for that, right? Well, if you're basing it on the verb being close, there, there is no noun that goes with that. That's about an object in English, and that that's all I'm trying to point out. Is and he they would have understood it very much in the realm of korban of 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 drawing close. My question is, is that when the priests were doing the sacrifice officially? So the so that's a very long discussion. And if you look at Jewish history, and you look at the prophets, right? Um, actually, I lied earlier when I said this is exclusively P. When I said that to you, because we also know that we're going to get as part of Leviticus the source that we call H. Remember I taught you about H? Who's H? What's H for? What does H stand for? Oh, my goodness. Well, at least I know that like I can teach material over and over again. And <laughs> y'all won't know. Holiness code. So we are going to get, in Leviticus 19, like we're going to get the holiness code. The reason I bring it up is because the holiness code is some of the earliest pushback against this system from people who say, how does that draw us closer to God exactly? Like, okay, okay, it might. But does it really affect Israelites' behavior when they leave this temple precincts? Jesus was one of these critics who said, really? Right? The money changers are out here. Like, there's a lot of business going on here that your people you know, are involved in as soon as they finish offering the sacrifices. So how effective are they exactly? Not so much, right? That's why he overturns the the tables, saying, "Why, why is Saks Fifth Avenue, you know, merchandise out on the sidewalk right outside the temple? Really, people, like, like, hello, what do you think you just offered a dove for, right? So, those critics are as early as Leviticus. The Holiness Code is probably a response to those." People who say, all you care about is the mechanics of this, and you don't care about what kind of people people really are. Like, how are they behaving in their daily lives? They bring a sacrifice, blah, 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 and they do all the things right, but then they trash their mother-in-law in front of her son, right? So, or they're, they're cheat, cheating in business practices, and they're ripping people off. And so that, that becomes more and more the case, the people who are connected to the priesthood are the, who? Who do they become? The Sadducees? 
um, and the people opposed to this system saying it's corrupt. You're just bringing a bunch of offerings. No one sees what happens. No one's allowed in there. It's not affecting us at all. They are the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees did not suggest the temple should be destroyed. I don't want to make it too extreme. They said, fine, you bring your offerings and you do what you're supposed to do. But just as important is how we behave and studying the ethics and morals behind all of this stuff, not just the mechanics. And they become a pressure against the Sadducees, and that that tension begins to really pull the Jewish people apart. It really starts to, to tug at the fabric of Israelite society and weakens it, actually. Um, and then, of course, the Pharisees win by history. What would have happened had the Romans not destroyed the temple? It would have been very interesting to see, right? Would Pharisaic philosophy have eventually overthrown the temple order? Don't know. Right? Would they have moved on naturally to something else the way other religions did? Don't know. But it took a while for people to move past this idea of sacrifice. It took a long time. Um, so, but we'll never know. Right? Because the Romans made the decision by destroying the temple. It was gone, obliterated. Everything about sacrifice and all that was gone except for the fact that we now have a prayer service wherever there would have been a sacrifice in the temple, right? Sacrifice now is replaced, um, we think, only by prayer. So I brought you another text today because we think it's only by prayer, but it's not. Prayer was the primary one, but also tzedakah was a primary uh, replacer, replacement, um, for sacrifice, as was, I know we're not going to love this one, just hang with me, um, suffering was understood to be somehow related to you know, the idea of um, sacrifice. Really? Really. Really. Well, if, so if a person suffers, then it's like they're sacrificing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's well, where all the Jewish, Jewish mothers <laughs> came about. <laughs> right? Right. It's a Jewish thing to suffer. I mean, it's, we consider that. Are you sure? Right. Right. So you suffer a loss, we would say in English, right? That it's related, right? That we 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 are giving something up that we then lose, right? So um, in, in a sense, early, there's a kernel of suffering in there. But when you don't have sacrifice left and what you are left with is a bunch of suffering, it makes complete and utter sense to me that theologically you had, you had to do something with that. You had to do something with suffering, right? The Jews had it so bad for so long. I, I just, you, you theologically have to do something, with that, right? Um, so, um, all right. Korban, karov, holy, got it. So that's that's the business of sacrifice. We're gonna well, we're not done with this, obviously. We're staying in this book for a while, so we're not done with this. I'm go- I brought you charity today, uh, and next uh, time I will bring you suffering. Okay. <laughs> There are so many things in this class that if they are said out of context, it's like, great, she brought us charity today, next week suffering. Awesome. Um, I want to go back to the first line of Vayikra before we leave to look at these other sources. Look at, go back, keep your finger there at the first sentence and then go back to the last sentence of Exodus. 
Keep your finger on 1-1. One, one, and then go back to the first, the last verse of Exodus. These are your books. It's your Torah. You can do this. You can handle it. Find Exodus. Find the last verse. Got it? All right. Good job, Ruben. So, um, Elena, you were there. Read the last verse of the book of Exodus. For, uh, 38, for over the tabernacle, a cloud of Adonai rested by day, and fire would appear in it by night in the view of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys. Okay, go, go to the second to last. Okay. Um, I did. But if the cloud, or when the cloud lifted from the temple. No. Where, where does it say Moses? Oh, when Moses. When Moses finished the work. All right. Shh, shh. All right. All right. So look at 34. When Moses had finished the work, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the presence of Adonai filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the presence of Yudhe filled the tabernacle. Right? Okay. So the ta- and then our last verse for over the tabernacle, a cloud of Yudhe rested by day, and fire would appear in it by night, in the view of all the house of Israel throughout their journey. Some commentators want to say this verse is telling us that the Anan, the cloud, is not different from the fire. It appears differently. That the Anan was cloud, it appeared as cloud by day, but it appeared to them as fire by night. But then it was the same thing. It was the kavod of God that appeared to them, to the people differently during the day and at night. In verse, whatever that was, 36 or whatever, what did it say? It said, Moses, lo yachol. Moses wasn't what? Able. Right. To enter the tent, right? It doesn't say Moses was forbidden, right? It doesn't say he was told not to. What does the Torah say? Lo yachol, he couldn't. Hold that, and we come to verse one one. Vayikra el Moshe vayidaber Adonai elav meohel moed lemor. God called to Moshe from the tent, saying. Right? Speak to the people of Israel and tell them blah, 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 blah. So the rabbis say that when the presence of God filled the tabernacle, and, and it's, the Torah tells us, Moshe lo yachol to enter. He wasn't able to enter. It's a beautiful teaching. Because you know the rabbis are not going to leave it there. Right? The, the, God forbid. Like there's a beautiful spiritual teaching here. And the rabbis say, Moshe was so overcome, so overwhelmed, so moved, so whatever, that lo yachol, he, he couldn't, he wasn't able, he understood that he wasn't able. He, the presence of God filling the tabernacle made him understand somehow lo yachol. I think it's Aviva Zornberg who lifts this up out of the tradition. Um, he, he, realized he wasn't able. You can fill in the blanks about what that means but he realizes lo yachol and the rabbis say because Moshe knows lo yachol then we get the next verse vayikra Adonai el Moshe it is that that triggers God to call to Moshe 
saying, come. It is when we realize we are not able that we feel it is too much. It is overwhelming. There is no way I can do this. It is too, it is just too huge, too daunting, too scary, too complicated, too whatever. That is the moment that God calls to Moshe and says, come. That God, in a sense, helps Moshe step forward and take on his role as leader because God understands that it feels too much. And Rashi on this line of Vayikra says, Vayikra, the word Vayikra, and God called, it's Lashon Chibuk. It's the language of affection. It's the language, a chibuk uh, in modern Hebrew is a hug. It's a, it's a language of intimacy. That whenever we see Vayikra and God called, it is followed by something that is about intimacy. And that God understands that Moshe is in a place of loyachol. I can't. That he wasn't, he truly wasn't able. And that is what triggers Vayikra. The language of, in my imagination, like, then I can help you. Right? As long as we go, I can't, that triggers the divine to say, yes, you can. This is different from the other time when Moses said, I can't do that. Right, send somebody else. <laughs> right? Send somebody else. Because then he's all up in his head and he's all, right. right, you know, it's not me, you need somebody else. Here it's like, lo This has a, I, I really, I, a I, He realizes he can't, he can't. And it's not about, who knows what it's about. But here's like, you know, the, the massiveness of this, of his task, I don't know, of his role, I don't know, of, it's outside of all that it means. Outside of himself here. It's, it's he wasn't able. And, and in a way, I think it's really interior too. The rabbis read it as he, he, he wasn't able. And that is the moment. And we get so caught. I think we, I guess what I'm trying to say, why do I keep hammering this? Because it's a beautiful teaching for me. I feel like we get so caught up in we have to be able. Right, and we're all about accomplishing. We're all about if I get another, if I get an MBA, then I'm going to certainly be able to. You know, like I can walk into that meeting and run that. Like we, we get all caught up, and we're supposed to be able to do everything, and that's what gives us great skills as leaders or as achievers. That's what success is defined by: is I can do that, right? And we 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 go to great lengths to build ourselves up that I can do this. And the model here is is this teaching about it's it's actually when we go. I can't. That if that if we listen, by you cry. That there's a vo- there's a voice calling us forward, calling us into what we think we cannot. That we think we are not. There's a voice by you cry, that calls us from the fullness of that tent, saying, "Come, there's you, there's there's things for you to do. Come on, I'll I'll, t- I'll tell you. Like I'll help you. Like I." I'm, and I think that's just an incredibly beautiful way of busting open the the simple you know reading of the text um, in ways that our tradition has continued to do to keep these texts about some rituals that happened 2,000 years ago in a temple that may or may not have become meaningful in the end to us. This is what keeps it so deeply relevant and and meaningful. It would have been more understandable if so that's why I said earlier some people want to some commentators want to read this as a continuation 
of Exodus, not as a new beginning of a new book. That's why I said that. They said it does belong to, oh, you mean even before the last lines of Exodus? Take two pieces of paper. Yeah, it, it would have been nice to follow immediately. After Lo and then Vayikra. Right. Right, and so that's why some people are saying, don't read it, this is a new book. This, God forbid. I mean, Torah is a... Torah is an ongoing revelation. It is a continuing revelation. There's not early and late. You know, don't read it as a new book. It's a continuation of this moment. And, and I love how they link those. George, shh, shh, two pages. Of course, but come close. Let me talk to you. God's going to talk to him. God's going to talk to Moshe. Come. And let me talk to you. Right, right. Go here. Come. I'll talk to you. It's not about entering the tent. Right? For the rabbis, this teaching is about lo yachol. He just he wasn't able. He just wasn't. And so and that's when we get vayikra and God calls. And it doesn't matter about entering the tent or not entering the tent. It triggers God's call to him. Ah, but I, I don't think so. That's that's the point. Beyond the pshat. Two pieces of paper, they should be different. Because <laughs> I'm seeing that two are the same here. Go to charity. Yes? All right. The following story is recounted in rabbinic literature. And I vote to Rabbi Natan. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was exiting Jerusalem and Rabbi Yeshua was following him. He saw the temple destroyed. Shh. Rabbi Yeshua said, Woe to us that the temple is destroyed, a place that the sins of Israel were atoned. Right? So you understand what he's saying? Like, oh, it's like it's still so horrible that the place where we got sin atoned for has been destroyed. He told him, My son, don't be in sorrow. We have one atonement equal to it. It is tzedakah. Since it said, I desired tzedakah, not sacrifice. So they looked to Hosea, Right, a prophet who is one of the critics, Dana, of right the temple system, who says, What I desired from you is tzedakah, not sacrifice. We see this all over the prophets. We just don't read the prophets. Like we keep coming back to this text, the the text about sacrifice. We don't read the prophets who say greater than sacrifice is tzedakah, right? Okay. It is not by chance that this statement is attributed to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. This is our author now. This is not um, from Hosea. It is not by chance that this statement is attributed to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, known to us in rabbinical school as the YBZ. And it's attributed to the YBZ, considered the main figure responsible for shaping Jewish life after the crisis of the destruction. The atoning power of charity can be understood in a simple manner. How? Given to the poor and needy appeases God no less than does sacrifice. Charity is therefore an act that atones. If it's as good as sacrifice, then it must do what sacrifice does, right? Which is atone. You give till it hurts. You give till it hurts. (laughs) (laughs) That's suffering. In another rabbinic text, uh, in the Babylonian Talmud, in Baba Batra, the nature of charity as an alternative to sacrifice gains a deeper meaning. Here's, Here's a story from the Talmud. Rabbi Dushtai ben Yanai taught, come and see how the manner of the Holy One, blessed be God, is not as the manner of human beings. When a human being brings a present to the king, there is a doubt whether it will be accepted or not. And if it be accepted, whether he will see the king. But the Holy One, blessed be God, is not so. If a man gives a coin to a poor man, 
he is rewarded and experiences the appearance of the Shekhinah as it is written in Psalms. As for me, in Sedek shall I behold thy face. Rabbi Elazar used to give a coin to a poor man before praying, quoting the above verse. So in the Psalms, there's a verse that says, as for me, in Sedek shall I see your face. Sedek is the root of tzedakah. Justice, righteousness, right, is the root of the noun tzedakah. So, so there's this, this concept of justice. How do I achieve that? The means for that is tzedakah. How do I achieve righteousness? By sharing with those who have less. And in Psalms it says, that's, when I will, that's how I behold thy face. And so the rabbis in the Talmud are saying, you give a, a gift to a king, the king may not even accept your gift. And if the king accepts your gift, the king just may keep it and say, bye-bye, like no more time to see people today. But not so with God. And it shows us that in the Psalms. That if I do tzedek, I behold the face of God immediately. I behold the presence of the Shekhinah. Okay, beautiful. It's a beautiful teaching. The Talmudic statement sets charity within the problematic character of an offering. This, this person is writing about offering as complicated and as anxiety producing offerings are always anxiety I, I went over this with you last year but it's kind of deep I mean it was even hard for me so it's like I get it if you don't remember but the whole thing is that this person offering you don't know if it's going to be accepted there's an anxiety built into offering gifts and in the ancient world um, offering gifts to people and gift acceptance was the system of monetary exchange it wasn't I give you money and you give me something you think that money's worth. It's I give you a gift. Now you, if you accept the gift, it's reciprocal. You now owe me. The more gifts you give, the more people owe you. Does that make sense? And the, the commodity was being owed a favor, a gift. Okay? So that's the system that we're talking about producing a lot of anxiety. Because if I offer you a gift, if you don't accept it, I have no way in. I'm just cut off and rejected. And they say this is the real meaning of Cain and Abel. That, that Cain's sacrifice wasn't accepted. He was cut out of the, of, the, of the cycle of gift giving and receiving. And because he was cut out, he was cut off. And that's why he's enraged and kills Abel. All right. So, so, so do you see why this thing about Sadaka then becomes important? Like if I give you a gift, you may accept it or you may not, but not so with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. The Holy One, if I give tzedakah, if I give a gift to a poor person, immediately I will right, become into the divine presence. All right, so that's very comforting if, if you're in the cycle of anxiety about giving and receiving. All right, in the next statement, drop down to that last paragraph. In the next statement, the Talmud provides a bold reason for why charity secures this closing of the gap established by the gesture of the offering. This teaching is introduced by a rare formula. And this happens in Talmud. Were it not written in Torah, one would not dare to say it. But we're going to dare to say this shocking thing because it's written right there in Torah. Now, generally, what are they going to do with the verse where it says this in Torah? What are they going to do to that? They're going to completely flip that verse on its head. Completely. It's written in Torah. You, can, you don't look at us. Don't like you, don't shoot the messenger. It's written right there in black and white, right? But they're going to take what's written in black and white and completely turn it inside out. That's what they're going to do here. Were that written in Torah, we wouldn't dare to say it. But here it comes. <laughs> the phrase. So and he's explaining what I just said. That that's how this phrase is used. So what's so shocking? 
that we wouldn't say it unless it were in Torah. Go to your, turn that page over. Rabbi Yochanan said, what is the meaning of the verse? Now, this comes from Torah. So, right? He that has pity on the poor lends to God. Were it not in scripture, one would not dare to say it. What is that that you wouldn't dare to say? The borrower is a slave to the lender. Explain to me why this is so shocking. What just happened? He that has pity on the poor, here's me, right? I, pity, I'm sure, means giving, right? To the poor, what does it say? Lends to God. What is the shocking thing they're going to take from this sentence? It's the next line. That the borrower becomes a slave to the lender. Is that justification for anonymous giving? No. The, the borrower becomes a slave to the lender. What is this saying? If I give to the poor, God owes me. I'm taking care of God's debts. And if I'm lending to, if I give to George because George doesn't have, God is supposed to take care of George. I'm paying God's debts by giving George money. And if I paid God's debt, what does that mean? God is now beholden to me. If it weren't written in Torah, you couldn't say it. Because what a shocking, shocking. But of course, they've taken that verse and have completely applied a verse that didn't write to, okay, to this situation. They've taken a verse and completely turned it inside out. Yes. We just did this upside down. Yeah. It seemed to me that when paganism of the Canaanites evolved into monotheism of the Israelites, yeah. they couldn't get rid of everything. Right. They couldn't get rid they got rid of idols. But they couldn't get rid of sacrifice. Didn't want to get rid of everything. Okay. So they couldn't get rid of sacrifice or didn't get rid of sacrifice. Right. So with charity and the concept of community that came from us leaving and being together for 40 years in the the desert, charity is replacing the sacrifice. Later. Yeah, when sacrifice is gone. When sacrifice is gone. Charity is paying a debt or justice for community, individual, which is godly. Yes. Yes. So I see that charity is um, a replacement for sacrifice. Yes. Yes. That's what this is about. Yes. You got it. This is a replacement because it's gone. Sacrifice is gone. They they long for a way to feel like they can atone. So all of these texts are coming to say, don't worry. There are still powerful ways to atone. Now it's going to be about taking care of the poor. So yes, this is the brilliance of Judaism. It moves it out of how do I have right relationship with God into by taking care of other people. That's how. Right? It's a, it's a wonderful move. It's a beautiful move. 
So it's an excellent question. Hopefully, right? The, I mean, they thank God because God's debt got paid. They thank God. God's debt was paid. They don't need to know who the instrument of that was. Right? That's, you know, that... I think, what, and it's not just about, okay, God owes me now. It's, it's, it's less that than it is. It again goes to this anxiety of the system, right? That God, God accepts my gift in a different way when it's me paying God's debts, right? Then it's, you can assume it's accepted, right? That, that the anxiety in that being efficacious is gone, you know, which is what he says um, in that next uh, paragraph. All right. Oh, God, I don't even want to know. Um, it doesn't seem to raise that as a possibility, right, um, that, that the poor might reject that no, gift. But, but somebody said something about anonymity before, and, and part of the concept of anonymity, which is hard for developing first, you want people to model but the other part of it that I think is the Jewish part of it is that the receiver should not feel a debt to the donor. Correct. Correct. All right, quickly, I'm not going to go over it with you. I know I'm keeping you past your time. I'm sorry. Um, the, the page in Hebrew, so the Hebrew is on uh, is number 71 for anyone who wants to work through the Hebrew with the translation on the other side, but I just thought for our time, this was a very timely commentary. All these sacrifices are to be offered with salt. If you've ever had challah and be in a tradition where you dip it in salt, this is why. Your Shabbos table is a is an altar, and you know the hefty challah is a symbol of the offering, right? Because you have two challot, you have, you know, and, um, and you dip it in salt because salt was offered with the sacrifices. Salt, salt, salt was very expensive. It was a absolute, not just sign of wealth. It, it, it was wealth. At one point, it was money. Salt was money because it was so expensive. Uh, remember, in the ancient world, you can't eat meat for very long unless you salt it. You can preserve meat, and it lasts longer if you salt it. So for that and many other reasons, salt was very expensive. Okay, so remember that. You take salt and hollow to a new home. Right. So, and it was, of course, a sign of purity, but also eternity. Salt never goes bad. So for all these reasons, it was very powerful as a symbol. What you don't know is that in medieval chemistry, salt had both the qualities of fire, but it comes from water. Salt comes from the sea. So it's it's got the quality of water and the quality of fire. In the ancient in the ancient in the medieval world, if you're talking about the humors, right? There are four humors, right? Fire, air, earth, and water, right? And certain ones were opposites of each other. Water and fire were opposites. You, you only need you need to know that for this. Okay, here we go. So salt was offered with all of these sacrifices. Why? In order, says our commentary, to proclaim the Holy One ruler over the opposites that exist in the world and that cause many to leave the faith for atheism, apicorsim, they become heretics, right? When they say that one source could not have emerged into two opposite things, right? A lot of religions has this binary, good, evil, bad, white, black, negative, positive, and they're, they're, and they're forces that oppose each other, right? In Zoroastrianism, which our prayer book is an argument against, right? You had the source of evil and the source of good, and those were two different divine forces, right? So, so this lingers, right? And that some people go, well, you can't have two opposite things coming from the same source, so there can't be a God. There can't be a unifying 
agent in this world, right? And so it was a force that caused some people to leave, like in our time at science. You know, whatever it is that caused people to say, that other stuff is mumbo jumbo. In their time, it was it. Opposites can't be part of one God. That's not possible. Okay. For salt in its taste is simultaneously one thing and its opposite. For it contains the power of fire and warmth, but is the product of water. So that the sages of the Kabbalah say that it corresponds to both the attributes of judgment, deen, and of compassion, rachamim. Deen is fire, rachamim, mercy, is water. Therefore, it is called the covenant of your God. For by this offering, they make a covenant with the eternal to proclaim divine ruler over opposites. Okay? Um... So we go to our commentator's comments, right? The attributes of judgment and compassion. So on the right-hand side, judgment is deen, identical with the sphira of gevura. The Hebrew for compassion is rachamim, an alternative name for tiferet. This is not what I wanted. All right, I'm very upset that I don't have for you. Exactly why. Um, this was so important. But let me just say... <laughs> His commentary is that, and I thought the reason it was timely is because that, that salt was there as part of the on the altars to say that God is God rules over all of this business, both rachamim and din and and water and fire, all the things that we see as opposites, and it's offered on the altar to say God is the one in which those differences and opposites are held together. And I feel like in our time, we need more and more ways of reminding ourselves that the opposites are opposites, but they are not different from the divine imperatives, whatever those are, right? Deen and Rachamim are necessary. The opposites of judgment, strict judgment, Gevura and Rachamim and, and mercy and compassion, they're both necessary. And I, when are we going to figure it out that we need both both instincts, both approaches in any given situation? We can't have them be split off and be completely entirely different things. They're not. Right, the message is you put salt there to say, and there's something that unifies all of it. What is that? Is it America? Is it the dream of a representative democracy? Is it living together as the Jewish people and being part of an evolving religious civilization? What, what is that unifying field? What is that unifying factor? And how do we continue to remind ourselves that that's a sacred obligation is to work for getting it that these things all belong to the realm of something bigger and that we're so it's it's frustrating to stay in the world of how opposite and different and and opposed we are but we've got to reach we've got to figure out a way to reach for the melach for the salt right um in order to connect to the idea of melech, right of that which rules over all of it and I and I just am so desperate for ways to do that. I'm so I'm so longing for ritual or anything that we can just keep doing to remind ourselves, yes, it feels horrible. Yes, we're locked in this battle. Yes, it feels hopeless. Yes, it feels like it's all coming up the wheels are coming off the thing. Yes. And we have to believe, right, that there's something that it's all a part of that's bigger that we serve or else we're just going to stay in these binary, yes, I can, no, I can't, I should, no, I should. Like, and, we, and we are just not going to m- move the larger enterprise forward towards where I think the divine would love to see us get, which is just one little step 
right, closer to whatever the ideals are that, that we're working for. And I'm not saying it's not necessary that we clash. It is. Uh, but I think this teaching about Melach being put on the altar as a, as a remembrance that, yes, things are very different in this lived world that we live in. And we've got to figure out a way to, to bring it together to serve the Kaddish Baruch Hu, to serve the Holy One. Blessed be it. God's calling. Amen. God's calling. Vayikra. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.